And so if, if you do have your Bibles today, uh, you can turn to 1 John, and that's going to be in chapters 2, verses 18 through 27. Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, we do have some hardback black ones in the seat pockets, uh, some kind of scattered throughout the rows. You can grab one of those, and you can turn there with us. Uh, in those Bibles, will be on page uh, 1021, so if you get there, you can turn there. Uh, but, but once again, we're in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Uh, and if you're able to with me this morning, when you get there, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read together here. Okay, starting in chapter 2, verse 18. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, I just want to say thanks so much for joining us, making us a part of your week. Uh, hopefully someone has shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do here. We would love it if, uh, if it is your first time that you would connect. One of the ways you could do that is there should be a connect card in the seat back in front of you. If you'd fill that out and turn that in, we'd love to know that you were here with us. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing, like Eric said, in the book of 1 John. Uh, and last week, we talked about John's admonition to not love the world. And so this week, uh, and I, I joked about it last week, I got another really chipper topic for you. I get to talk about the Antichrist. So that's good. So in light of that, would you bow your heads with me? I'd love to pray for us and myself that God would help us, okay? Father, thank you um, for your word. And although we joke and, and we like to have a good time, Lord, we truly are grateful that you have so clearly and so truthfully provided for us your written word so that we don't have to feel around in the dark, God. Holy Spirit, thank you that you illuminate the truth Thank you that you have anointed each and every believer that they don't have to feel as though they don't have secret knowledge, but that, God, you have lovingly made plain the, your plan to redeem the world through your son, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we invite you now, would you make plain again your word and help us to hear it, to listen well? And God, for our hearts to be changed, help us to have submissive and humble hearts. Help us to be keen to see false teaching, to recognize false teaching. 
to operate in love, but to love one another well enough to care about the dangers of lies and falsehood, God. We love you, we honor you, and we trust you this morning that you are gonna do the work that only you can, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I, think, I see three things in this text that Eric just read, and I wanna start here, and then we'll kinda of start working through them. The first thing that I see here is John is, is warning the church, and we know that John's not writing to a particular church, he's more probably writing to a collection of churches and Christians. What I see is that John's writing to this collection of churches, warning them that they are in the last hour. Now, if you, if you grew up in the Bible Belt at all, I did, you probably have heard an end-time sermon or at least been um, privy to end-times teaching at some point in your life. And when I first entered into any kind of church, one of the first sermons I ever heard was an end-time sermon, and everyone was convinced that the Lord was going to return that year. Uh, and uh, I remember being somewhat scared of that as a child, but also kind of excited after I heard that, you know, when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things right. And, you know, there were regularly books that were written in my childhood about why the prophecies pointed to them. Like, for instance, there was a book written, uh, 88 Reasons Why the Lord's Going to Return in 88. This was a long time ago. Turns out there, those 88 reasons were not true, but um, there's also a number, you know, the year 2000, right? It was Y2K in a secular sense, or it was the Lord's Day, you know, in a Christian sense, right? That, that the Lord's coming back. And, and we always kind of look for signs of the times. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, to say that we're in the last days. Well, here's what I will say. The Bible actually says we were in the last days ever since Jesus resurrected and ascended. John says that we're in the last hour, and this was 2,000 years ago. So we've been in the last days for a really long time. It doesn't mean that I think that we should just fall to sleep and say, oh, well, Jesus is never going to return. I actually think that's what the Bible says that a lot of the world would do. Jesus will come like a thief in the night because everyone will say, huh, so much for this whole second return thing or second coming. I don't think we should do that. I do think we should be careful not to speculate on days and times because in the end, it kind of moves the goalpost from what the Christian should really be aimed at, which is God, a God-glorifying life no matter how long you have on this earth. Because the truth is, we could meet Jesus tomorrow because he returns, or any of us could meet Jesus tomorrow because we, our life ends in some tragic way or some unexpected way, right? So either way, the goalpost should be God-glorifying, Christ-exalting life by the Spirit, no matter how long we get to live on this earth until Jesus returns. But having said that, the text that we're in, John is warning the church that we are in the last hour of deception, that there's a deceptive spirit that will come against the church in the last hour, and he particularly mentions the Antichrist, that's an individual, and Antichrists, plural, these are uh, a group of people that oppose Christ. The word Antichrist li literally means opposing Christ or opposing Jesus. In your Bible, what you'll find is that there's a very nefarious character that's mentioned throughout your Bible, kind of woven throughout, all the way from Daniel to Revelation. This nefarious character is the Antichrist singular. It's this guy that kind of is a false Jesus that arises in the last day. And he puts, he places himself on a seat of authority and kind of juxtaposes himself against the Christ that Christians believe in, right? Uh, there's many different words for this guy, the man of lawlessness, the man of deception, all of these things, right? And, and John is saying, hey, we know this guy's coming. But then John goes on to say, and we know that there's many antichrists, plural, already, meaning there's a ton of false teachers that are already opposing Jesus and his message. And that that started from the moment that the church was born. The moment that churches began to be planted by the early church apostles, false teachers also started to come in and begin to try to corrupt the church's teaching on who Jesus was. So John's 
warning the church about this. And listen to me, if you look historically, this is not something that's odd that John's talking about this. John's speaking about this because there's these Gnostics that had come in and they had begun to spread false teaching to the Christian church to say, yeah, you know the gospel, but you don't know the secret knowledge. And they basically held this, this idea of secret knowledge up over the heads of Christians saying, if, if you want to attain the secret knowledge, you need something more than Jesus. So it was Jesus plus the secret experience and knowledge up here. And John's combating that, saying it's not true, right? Number two, he's saying false teachers are rampant. It's not just antichrist singular, it's antichrist's plural. And that these are myriad of people who come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some of them knowingly are false teachers and some of them are unknowingly false teachers, deceived even themselves that they teach the truth. And then lastly, John is saying that the Holy Spirit is our only hope. John regularly says in this passage that we are anointed by the Spirit and that the Spirit will teach us, the Spirit will help us discern, the Spirit is our only hope to combat false teaching. Some of you know, if you've been here for any time, a few years ago, well, a little longer than that now, my wife and I started an adoption process with our son Jonas, and we traveled uh, twice to Kyrgyzstan, which you probably don't know where Kyrgyzstan is. You probably thought of Borat. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, Kyrgyzstan is a tiny little landlocked country south of Kazakhstan, and west of China. And we didn't know where it was either until we started our adoption process with our son. And we traveled twice. The second time, we were going to court, and we had to stay there for 60 days. And when we noticed, I mean, first of all, when you go into the country, it's a Eurasian country, and there are a lot, mostly Asian people. So me walking in there, I'm immediately an eyesore, right? I try to not blend, like to blend in, I blend out, okay? Which, you know, to be honest, I kind of already blend out in America. So it's already, it's a little worse when I go overseas. So we go, it's very cold uh, whenever we traveled there. And when I say very cold, I mean zero degrees and lower. We're walking around in these Soviet blocks that are like four to five times longer than American typical blocks. And uh, so I'm, I'm already recognizing people kind of stare at us. So you got big six foot four, um, you know, red bearded white guy. And my wife, who can kind of pass off a little bit better than me because she's a brunette and I have really pale skin. And then we have our little son, Jonas, right? He got to stay with us. And I recognized that people were staring at us a lot. Well, then we go to court, and I remember going to our court case, and I just kind of felt that there was this antagonism the entire time through our court case. Like, we were, they were a little skeptical of us. And, you know, that, that's kind of off-putting because you're like, man, I want, I want the, the, the judge to think that I'm a good person. You know, I want them to think that I care about my child. I'm not going to do it. But you always kind of get this feeling that, like, they do not like me. And I don't know about you, but I don't like not being liked. I think most people don't like not being liked, you know. Um, so you're kind of like trying to figure out, how am I going to get in good here? You don't get in good. Um, we go outside. We, we ended up going to court for uh, four different court cases over the course of three days. And the prosecutor who is working for the country of Kyrgyzstan was asking us questions in the hallway as we kind of came back and forth from the courts, uh, the judges' chambers. And one of the questions the prosecutor asked us was, um, Will you, obviously they're a translator, we're listening to him, but then we'll look to the translator. The translator looks at me and says, uh, will you beat the child if they don't convert to Christianity? Because they know I'm a pastor. My eyes get big. I'm like, my gosh, I don't think you know how things operate. No, <laughs> it's not how that works. Like, we wouldn't do that. And my, I, I chuckled a little bit. They were not laughing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say. No, I'm trying to tell her, tell, or tell him emphatically, no, that's not how it goes. Okay, next question. Will you lock him in closets if, you, if he doesn't do what you ask him to do? I'm like, my goodness, like, is this regular practice? Of course not, right? 
Well, these questions just keep coming, and they, they keep coming. They're so intense. They're just like, no, 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 that's not the case. Well, afterwards, I, we asked our representative why were the, we can ask these ridiculous questions. And the reason was because there had been a spread of false information that American families were adopting children from Kyrgyzstan and that basically they were just abusing them, using them, and it was almost like a trafficking type uh, accusation against American families. So for us to come in, they were very skeptical of us because we thought they thought that we were just basically adopting our son in order to use him or to harm him or to hurt him or as a, as a ploy. And then I started to think, man, that's, wow, that's really what they thought of us when they walked in. So it wasn't just because I'm goofy looking. <laughs> that's only a part of it is what I thought. And the reason I tell you that story is because misinformation can be Let's say you get the wrong address and you go somewhere and it's kind of funny, haha. It can be comical or it can be deadly. And John is trying to teach the Christian church and to warn them that misinformation about the gospel, misinformation about who Jesus is, is eternally significant and can be deadly. It's not something that we should take lightly. When someone's spreading false information, even lies about the person of Christ, we can't say that's no big deal or pass it off as unnecessarily harsh by confronting it. So here's the question that I want to answer this morning. If the Holy Spirit is our only hope, what does John say the Holy Spirit does to protect and preserve us against false teaching? Okay, I have three main points, and I'll start with point number one. The Holy Spirit unifies God's children and preserves them from falling away. The Holy Spirit unifies and preserves us. So I'm going to read again 1 John chapter 2, and I'll read the first few verses. Children, John being a pastor, loving us, calling us his kids, it's the last hour. And as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming, so that's the singular, but now many Antichrists have already come. That's the plural. A lot of false teachers. He says, therefore, we know that it's the last hour because there's a lot of these false teachers that have crept into the church. Listen to this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Now this is key. What John's saying here is that the, the distinction between the false teachers and the saints had everything to do with them not remaining with the community and the body of Christ, but descending from them. And I don't mean descending, descending, I mean dissension. Cutting themselves off from the body. John's telling us here that perseverance in the faith is a true mark of the Holy Spirit's work in the human heart. That when we persevere in the faith, it shows that truly we've been saved by Christ. We are preserved by the Holy Spirit to continue in the faith even through hard times. And John combating these false teachers, he's combating them because they have not remained official parts of the body, but they've tried to remain to influence and cajole the Christian members to believe heresy. You ever experienced this? People that don't really want to be a part of Christian community, but they want to be just close enough to influence people who are actually committed. That's what's happening here. They don't really want to be a part of the church. They just want to have relationships with people in the church so that ultimately they can begin to influence their theological outlook. See, the Holy Spirit's work is always, listen to this, always a unifying work. The Holy Spirit always brings his people together. False, false teachers love to isolate and scatter people. It's why you may have heard me pastorally over the years talk about things like gossip or division or slander. These are things that I think false teachers use often as tools in order to divide. 
speaking evil of others. The Holy Spirit's work is always to bring people closer. It doesn't mean that they never have disagreements with others. It just means that when those disagreements arise, they typically address it person to person. They go to that person. They don't talk about that person. Does that make sense? The Spirit always brings us together. Alistair Begg says this, there are some who share for a while our earthly company who do not share our heavenly birth. Read that one again. There are some who share for a while our earthly company, but they do not share our heavenly birth. Now you might be saying, why does this matter, Court? Are you being, aren't you being harsh? Like this just sounds really harsh. And, and I, I do think that John's got a little bit of a forceful tone here, right? Um, so when, when Morgan and I first started dating, we were, we were really young, we were kids. Didn't know how much of kids we were until you look back on it now. But we were really young. And uh, we joke about it now, but if, if you had seen me at showing up for the first date at Morgan's house and you were a father, you probably would have kicked me out. Um, and I remember in the earliest days that my father-in-law, he wasn't my father-in-law then, but Morgan's dad was really skeptical of me. <laughs> like, oddly skeptical of me. At least that's how it felt. Uh, and he would just do little things that were like subversively mean to me. Uh, and, and I'd just be, I'd be frustrated at it, right? Like I remember I had this old beat up S10 that like rarely, but every once in a while I had like an oil leak to it. And I remember I pulled up to pick Morgan up and before I could go in the house, he goes, hey, uh, park your truck on the street. You're not gonna mess up my driveway because <laughs> of the oil. I remember being like, this jerk. I was just gonna be real quick in and out, you know? Make me park. So I park on the street and have to walk like the green mile to their house, you know? <laughs> just, just little things like that. Um, and it wasn't until later that I realized that really it didn't have anything to do with how much he liked me or disliked me. The truth is it almost had nothing to do with me, how he treated me. It had everything to do how much he loved his daughter. I was really, it didn't, you could replace me with almost any other cookie cutter chump and he'd have treated it in the same way. It didn't have anything to do with me. I took it so personally, but really it had everything to do with how much he loved Morgan. Everyone was gonna get that skepticism. So I want to say, if you think through John's words with false teaching and you're like, man, he's so harsh, or Court, why are you being so harsh? I just want to tell you, we don't call out false teachers because we hate false teachers. It's because we love the church and because we love Jesus. That's it. Because you love God's people, you can be skeptical of false teaching, and that's actually a good thing because your heart is swelling for that which God loved and died for. That's the reason that it's important. And it is a loving thing to call out false teachers in the case that perhaps maybe they're deceived as well and God could use that as a moment to shine light on that which is really rotting them from the inside too. So I, I, I jotted down a few things that I have found over the course of pastoral ministry that can kind of be a litmus test for people that potentially are false teachers. Because I, I, don't, I think it's really dangerous. I just wanna make this comment. It's really dangerous to... Um, be hunting for false teachers everywhere. It's kind of like just giving someone a gun that's never hunted, like everything looks like a wolf from 100 yards away. So you're shooting everything, like, oh, that was a sheep. Let's not do that, okay? But I do think that there's something to be said about Christians who are discerning. So I kind of want to help to maybe bring some discernment to help us recognize them. First things, our relationships are never a priority for false teachers. They are very utilitarian, and they use people to gain influence and credibility. If you ever notice someone who comes into your home group or your life and you realize they don't really care much about you, but they love using you as an influence to get closer in or, or further up, that's usually a sign. Because false teachers don't really care about people, they like to use people for their own benefit. 
Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians when he says they are the super apostles who really just use you. Prosperity theology does this all of the time, right? They don't really care about people or the good of people. They just use people to fleece the flock to get their money. And relationships don't really matter. Relationships are only used as a means through which they can gain more financial currency. Also, repentance is rare with false teachers, and when it does occur, it usually seems disingenuine. I have found that when I recognize false teaching are people who are divisive, they, they typically, they rarely ever want to repent, but they regularly want others to repent. They rarely find the things that they themselves, like they hear a sermon, and they hear a sermon through the lens of what is wrong with it, not through the lens of what's wrong in my heart. And so regularly you'll find that in home group they have problems with everything except for themselves, the problem that's internal, and they're somewhat poisonous in their exercise of calling those things out. Also, a platform to speak their mind is so much more important to false teachers than relationships are. And false teaching can sometimes come in the forms of questions like Satan in the garden, did God really say? He could come in the form of concerns or prayer requests, not just sermons and Bible studies. False teachers always exhibit pride and it might even come through the obvious false humility. Now, why do I mention those things? Let's talk about what the Spirit does. Well, on the other side, the Spirit always calls us into deeper relationship with one another, right? Like the Holy Spirit's always pushing you into deeper relationship with others. The Holy Spirit is always calling you to care about people much more than just as what they can do for your influence or your platform. Think about Jesus' ministry. Jesus spent most of his time with people like lepers, uh, the sick, uh, and when he did spend time with the Pharisees, it just wasn't exactly the most like chummy conversations that they were having, right? Jesus didn't care so much about what status he was going to gain through relationships, and yet the Spirit was leading him into relationships with these, what you might consider, lowest of the lows of society. The Spirit calls us to regularly repent with genuine and sincere hearts and to not trifle with sin. If we find ourselves amongst people or even in our own heart not being regular in our repentance, we ought to ask ourselves, is it because we think we've gained a level of sanctification where repentance is no longer necessary for us? I want to caution you, friends, that's just not true. And that's a satanic lie. We don't, the more, I think the more you grow in Christian maturity, the more regularly you realize how much you need to repent, how often we ought to repent. The Spirit teaches us to be sincere with our questions, sincere with our concerns, sincere with our prayers, and to never use them as a means to divide, to gossip, to push our own personal agenda, ever. And so when we talk, when we think about, am I saying that the Spirit silences us and never allows us to engage with those things? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is that when we have concerns, when we have questions, when we have hurts, when we have wounds, the Spirit calls us to address those in a manner in which it's not talking about people, it's talking to people so that there can be true gospel reconciliation. It doesn't question the truth of God unless it's questioning the truth of God with a humble heart so that you might be ministered to by your brothers and sisters. The Spirit always seeks to unify even when conflict is necessary and healthy. So what, what you might find is false teachers have an issue with these three things, pride and authority, Many times the Bible says sensuality is an issue, typically means sexual sin. It means that they're trying to find a, a way where they can say this sensuality is okay, or greed, money and material gain. Those are three areas that you will often find false teaching. And I will just say that if you look into even some seminaries who have, who have abandoned the faith, you'll find those three things there. Problems with authority, 
desire for sensuality, issues with greed. Okay, so that's number one. Point number two, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit always exalts Jesus, his person and his work. The Holy Spirit always exalts and glorifies Jesus Christ. I'm gonna read again in 1 John chapter two. This time I'll kick down starting in verse 20. John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. Talking about the Spirit. And you all have knowledge. See, he's, he's combating these false teachers saying there's a secret knowledge. He says, no, you've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? There's the key. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the, who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay, so what John's saying here is that always false teachers tend to either outright deny or diminish the person and work of Jesus. Why would they do that? Because ultimately the person and work of Jesus is the red hot center of what it means to be saved. If we lose Christ, then we've lost our Savior. If we lose Christ and all that he is for us, then we lose our faith. So false teachers always in a roundabout way are getting there. Even the ones who knock on your door and talk to you about other things, ultimately, if you get down to the rock bottom of it, they don't believe the same things about Jesus. And that's the key. So I have found three ways that false teachers typically diminish or deny Jesus. Number one, they will just outright reject him. Jesus was nothing more than a man. Number two, they will redefine him. Have you ever heard this one? Jesus was a good guy. He was a wise prophet. He was a good teacher, right? But he's not the God man. Or they'll refine him, not just redefine him, but refine him. This is where they take the blunt edges of Jesus, like the sharp edges, and they just kind of sand those off. Jesus was about love, right? He was all about love. And listen, Jesus was all about love. The problem is we're just redefining love as something that only like warms our hearts and not something that tells us the truth. Can we agree as parents that's not real love? If you have kids in the room, if you operated in that, on that basis of love, would it be loving to let your toddler run headlong into the pool without telling him you can't swim? That's not loving. Would it be loving not to put a gate around the pool, perhaps, or to lock the front door so they don't run into the street? No, that's not loving. And yet that's how we've redefined Jesus. He really doesn't want to talk anything about sin because ultimately it's all good, even though you know, he had to die for it, a brutal death, no big deal. We'll just kind of shade that to the side. He's about love. That's just trying to refine the sharper edges of our Savior. I read a, uh, an article, and this was just uh, honestly one choice amongst many, from a very well-known seminary. Um, it was eight different questions. I'm not going to read through all of them just for the sake of time. Eight different questions from an interviewer who was interviewing a professor and reverend at this very progressive seminary. And I hesitate to call it seminary. <laughs> but, and they asked eight questions. Um, and in those eight questions, they, they tackled a number of topics. I'll just read to you some of the questions. Um, how do we reconcile an omnipotent, omniscient God with evil and suffering? Uh, he denied the physical resurrection, or she actually denied the physical resurrection. So then the question was, well, but without a physical resurrection, isn't there a risk that we're left without, with just the crucifixion? Um, isn't Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? What about miracles? What about the virgin birth? What about prayer? What happens when we die? These were all questions from a, uh, um, a secular uh, news outlet. 
In eight questions that only took up about a page in my notes, here are the eight major doctrines that were canceled in eight simple questions. Number one, she denied the physical resurrection. She denied substitutionary atonement, that Jesus stood in your place for your sins. She denied that God was omniscient, knowing all things, that God was omnipotent, all-powerful, that God was omnipresent everywhere, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that prayer was actually, <laughs> that prayer was actually efficacious, and that heaven or hell existed at all, or an eternal life, or any afterlife at all. That was in eight questions in one page. I read that because how quickly that could happen. How quickly she just, questions were asked, nah, not really sure about that, not really a big deal. The virgin birth really isn't a big deal. Uh, Jesus being really physically resurrected isn't a big deal. My, my faith doesn't hinge upon it. I think people are too obsessive about that. That's an actual quote, too obsessive about the resurrection. What John's saying is that that kind of smarmy theology is dangerous. It's not just something that we can comically laugh at. You know, there was, a, there was a tweet from this seminary recently, uh, like two weeks ago, where they were uh, confessing to plants their sins. I kid you not, this is not a joke. It's a real thing. And everybody laughed at it. It was like a joke. They came back with like 10 different uh, tweets saying why, why we should confess our sins to the plants. And, um, and here's the thing, like I laughed at it and then realized there's a growing, swelling movement of Christians that say, yes, that's good. That's important. And obviously this is low-hanging fruit for me as a pastor, you know, to, to, to kind of pick this out. But I want to say to you, this is not just something that's kind of isolated. It's a pervasive thought that at the really at the white, white hot center of what it means to be a Christian, those things are deeply questioned and even given away. And John is saying, that is dangerous. And in my experience as a pastor, whenever Christ is diminished, something always has to arise to fill that void. Because if you don't have Christ standing at the center of your Christianity, there's always going to have to be something else. When we abandon the exaltation of Christ as completely true and sufficient to save sinners, we're always going to find something else less valuable, less glorious, and ultimately less true to fill it. Here's a few examples. It's when church becomes all about social justice or all about church growth or all about self-empowerment or all about self-help or all about personal growth or how about this one, all about politics. Y'all seen this one recently? It doesn't matter what side, and this is not a political statement, just that the church all of a sudden is all about politics, like that's the main thing. Practically speaking, and this has happened heavily in the Bible Belt, it becomes about better bands, better musicians, better singers, better lighting, better video, maybe even dramatic skills with skits, for goodness sake. I'm not against skits, I'm just saying when those become the central focal point, more engaging children's ministry, weird props on the stage, dirt bikes to jump over the pastor, elaborate church giveaways. You can tell I'm not passionate about it at all. Spiritually speaking, it's always some Jesus plus this is all you need and it's just outright heresy. Jesus plus nothing. We need Jesus. He's entirely sufficient. He's entirely capable, all on his own, of standing alone in the church service with the preached word, with the song, everything we do in communion. He is entirely capable and sufficient to be all that we need. And when we abandon him, we lose all of our power and we dilute it. We think that by adding something that we're gaining something, when you add something to Jesus, it in inevitably loses because nothing can be added to Christ to make him better than he already is. The Holy Spirit always exalts Christ. If you wanna know, listen to me on this, if you wanna know how to spot false teaching, you can always find that in some way false teaching will diminish what Jesus did or diminish his person. 
they'll say he was just a man and not God, or that he was entirely divine, but he wasn't the God-man that could stand in your place for your sins. That yeah, he's the son of God, but he's not deity in and of himself. The spirit is not pleased with superficialities. The spirit does not like Jesus' light. I think that the spirit stands forth in the church and many times is quenched when we don't put forth the all-encompassing doctrine of Christ Jesus on the cross to save sinners like you and me. When we don't put that out front, the spirit grieves because inevitably it means we have to put something else out front, right? And and listen, friends, we can do this even in our lives. That's what John's getting at. He's saying, let's not allow this to be true of our church community because when it is, then individually, we're always gonna be pursuing other things too. And here's the problem is it always ends up disappointing us Which leads me to my last point here, point number three, the Holy Spirit teaches us and helps us discern false teaching. Last few verses say this. Let what you heard from the beginning, that's the word of God, abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Listen to this, John's gonna tell you why he's talking about this. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. That's why he's saying this. People are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I want to read a couple of texts from the the Gospel of John, chapter 16 and chapter 14. I'll start in 16. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14. This is Jesus. He's saying at the end of his life to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, this is key, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it from you. That's key. The spirit will glorify Jesus by taking the very words of God and declaring them to the apostles. That is a key text to why we say we're gonna preach the Bible every single week because Jesus prophesied and promised that the very spirit of God would declare the words of God to the disciples so that they could write them down and I don't have to just come up here and tell you my best, my best advice about what it means to follow God. And that no matter what, if you wanna litmus test me, you can always say, does what court says stir my affections for Jesus and exalt his name? Because if not, then it most likely is total bunk. Okay, John chapter 14 now. These things I have spoken to you, this is a little left-hand turn with Jesus again. I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, listen to this, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is key. He's talking to the disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're any critical, you're like, wait a minute, I have to trust that Peter's memory was perfect? Like, Peter's memory is not perfect in like five verses. It's like, you're the son of the living God. Don't go to the cross. You know, it's like, wait, if he's the son, he can kind of do what he wants. Forgotten five verses. This is telling you, you're not relying upon the disciples themselves, but the spirit of God himself who promised to bring to remembrance everything Jesus said. And that the disciples were wise enough to know we ought to write this down so that we can guard against false teaching. I can't reiterate this enough, the simple 
the simplest and most effective way to spot false teaching is to ask yourself whether it makes much of Jesus or diminishes him in any way. And then secondarily, in this letter, John is telling us that we ought to abide in the very word that was given to us from the beginning and that when we hold fast to the word by the power of the spirit, that we abide in the father and the son. So I read an article uh, as I was preparing for this about uh, federal agents, and some of you may have heard this before, but federal agents and how they spot counterfeits. So like, you know, money counterfeiting is a major big business. Um, people that they print out money, obviously, and then they learn how to launder that money to get the real bills back, and they put these fake bills into circulation. And you, you and I may have them in our pockets and not know, unless this has ever happened to you, but it's happened to me before where I, I've, I've been paying for something and they spotted a fake, and I have to go through a whole line of questioning. I'm like, my gosh, I didn't know. It's like, this is why I don't need to carry cash. But anyway, yeah, I've spotted a fake. And I was reading this article about how they train federal agents to spot fakes. And I ran along this quote. Federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing, and then when they see bogus money, they recognize it. That's key, isn't it? What they do is they, just, they keep showing them over and over and over again the real thing so that when they see a counterfeit, it's just so obvious to them. They even have a process. Touch, tilt, look at it, look through it. Like this whole process they go through with real bills so that now it's so easy to them as they're sifting through money, they can literally just pull out counterfeits. Why? Because it's absolutely impossible to be up to date, right, on all the different methods of counterfeiting. Similarly, so friends, it is absolutely impossible for you and me to be up to date on all false teaching. It's literally getting pumped out every moment. If you tried, you couldn't do it. But instead, the best way to spot false teaching is to know the real thing. It's to know the truth about Jesus. And I think there's two ways that John tells us to do that. Number one is we should be entrenched in reading uh, the written word of God. I wanna encourage you Christians, know your Bible so that you can know and spot false teaching. Know your Bible, know the truth, know your scriptures. Number two, and also experience what it means to live a life in the spirit, communing with the incarnate word, the living word, Jesus Christ. We were not only meant to read the Bible, but to commune with the word himself, Jesus. When you commune with God, when you have a relationship with Jesus, you can spot the false, weird, bogus lies of the enemy pretty quickly. To use another analogy, if you've been married for any length of time, isn't it easy to, to spot your, your wife or your husband's voice in a crowd? It's like you kind of know what they sound like. Or even like spot them across if you, they're in a busy mall or something. Like I know my wife, she probably spots me very easily. Once again, she could find a goofy from a mile away, right? Um, but the more that I spend time with my wife, the more there's a tenor to her voice. Like I just know what she, her voice sounds like. So that there are times where if I'm in the foyer and there's a lot of people here and I hear my wife, it perks me up. I know where she's at in the room. And that's because of relationship. That's because we've been around each other. That's because we've spoken to one another for so long and for so many years that I just know her. And I believe that that's what John is encouraging us to do here. He says, abide in Christ. Abide in the word that you had from the beginning so that you can spot the counterfeit when we know Jesus. I'll close with this thought. Why so serious, Court? Why are you so serious about this? And the answer is really pastoral, I hope. It's because false teaching really only has one result, and that's alienation from Christ. 
And listen to me when I say this. I not only love Jesus, I love you. And I love you enough to tell you this because there is no life apart from Jesus. And false teachers have one hope, and that's to get you apart from Jesus. And there's no hope apart from him. Every other way is a complete and utter sham, and I believe it with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I love you enough to say, don't fall into the sham. Andrew Murray said this about abiding in Christ, and he he uses this quote as an invitation, and I hope you'll take this as an invitation this morning. It says, Christ Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. In other words, I, the living one, who have so completely given myself to you, am the vine. You cannot trust me too much. I am the almighty worker, full of divine life and power. You are the branches of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is in your heart the consciousness that you are not strong, healthy, fruit-bearing branch, you're not closely linked with Jesus, not living in him as you should be, then listen to him say this to you. These are the words of Christ to you. I am the vine, I will receive you. I will draw you to myself. I will bless you. I will strengthen you. I will fill you with my spirit. I, the vine, have taken you to be my branches. I have given myself utterly to you, children. Give yourselves utterly to me. I have surrendered myself as God absolutely to you. I became man and died for you that I might be entirely yours. This is the call. Come and surrender yourselves entirely to be mine. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Jesus, help us to respond to that call. Long time believer in the room, not sure in the room. Help us to respond to the call you give from love that there is no other way to life but you and yet you so willingly and lovingly invite us to yourself. Jesus, make clear who you are to us, not just in your word, but in experience by the power of your spirit to commune with you, to know you, to actually have a walk with you, God. Help us to be people like that. And Lord, I ask for a compassionate heart with those who might be deceived with false teaching, give us compassion. With those who, are, who desire harm for the church, God, give us strength and courage. But altogether, my Lord, may we depend upon you that you might unite your church, unite us as your own. Keep us, preserve us, God. We thank you that you will. And as we take now of the table of the Lord, broken bodies shed blood, help us to be reminded, Jesus, that you are who you said you are. And there is no other way. Let us hold tightly to that truth. It is not only exclusive, it's glorious. And we love you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.